Good morning. Go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I do bring greetings from my family and from uh, uh, Inner City Baptist Church, my, my church, and of course, Detroit Baptist Seminary, uh, where I serve week in and week out. It's good to be back among you. I know it's, it's, it's been a really long time. I doubt there's anyone who remembers, but in 1991, when I was at Northland, uh, I, was, I was here on, uh, with Nord, the Northern Lights representing the school. I remembered instantly when I came in here, the architecture. I always wondered what was behind that wall back there. So, <laughs> and so it's, it's been a while, but it's, it's good to be back here. Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 18. Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. For unto the angels he hath not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands." Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he has put in all in subjection under him, he left nothing that was not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him, For whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying, I will declare thy name among unto my brethren. In the midst of the church I will sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Forasmuch then, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part in the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is, the devil, and to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject unto bondage. For verily he took not upon himself the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, and to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor those who are tempted." As I prepared this sermon that I'm delivering today, I remember there was in the background a bit of white noise of Christmas music ongoing. Sadly, that's what Christmas music has become to many, and perhaps that's just as well with some of the tripe that passes as Christmas music this week. But there are some very well-conceived carols and other Christmas songs that do what music is supposed to do. Incline our hearts to carefully crafted ideas and notions that have great significance for believers. One of our family favorites at this time of year are what are called sometimes still black spirituals. 
And we particularly appreciate one that we worked up for a concert a few years ago, Sweet Little Jesus Boy. The song is very simple. It's very persistent. It repeats over and again a phrase with subtle variations addressed to this Jesus. We didn't know who you were. Sadly, this is a widespread reality at Christmas time, even among those who claim to be Christians. So as we ramp up to Christmas, I thought that a sermon that addresses this concern would be in good order. I actually developed a three-part sermon, three-sermon three, three series called What is Jesus? Who was Jesus? a few years ago. Uh, first question was, who was Jesus theologically? The second, who was Jesus historically? And then, who is the Jesus of faith? This morning, I'm going to spend most of my time talking about the first of these topics, the Jesus of theology. I was tempted, actually, to preach through the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So I was very happy to see that it was at the end of the program here uh, this, this, this morning. I don't think I am daring enough yet to preach a hymn, at least as a guest speaker, certainly. But if there was a song that I was going to, a hymn that I was going to preach through, I think that I can think of no more suitable song than this one. And I'd like to begin our study this morning with a reminder made in this hymn and in the text this morning of the role of angels that was played in the announcement of the birth of Christ. The very first speaker in the New Testament canon, Matthew 1.20, was an angel who explained that Jesus was no ordinary person. He was Emmanuel, God with us, it was sung about this morning. The first speaker in the book of Luke is also an angel who in chapter 1, verse 13, announces to Elizabeth that she was going to bear a son, John, who would prepare the way for Jesus, for God himself. Even though uh, John was only six months uh, uh, senior of Jesus. Another angel appears six months later to Mary to explain to her the most extraordinary circumstances of her pregnancy. This child that she was going to carry would not be the result of a relationship with a man. Instead, the Holy Spirit would attach the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity to a developing human body that God had miraculously caused her to produce within her own womb. And so we find that the angels are particularly important figures in the explaining of who Jesus was. This is no coincidence because the author of Hebrews 2 begins the same way, with observations about the relationship of our Lord Christ to the angels. The author of Hebrews here begins his discourse in verse 5 <clears throat> by stating here that despite the magnificent power of angels, God did not give them nearly the attention and authority that he gave to humans. In fact, all the way down in verse 16, he says that angels have no part in the atonement. He did not become an angel, and so there's nothing in the atonement for angels. Jesus did not come to rescue angels. He came to rescue his brothers according to the flesh. Fallen angels, we find, are irremediable. And our, tech, and our text gives us really three reasons why that's true. The vast company of angels that God created, firstly, <clears throat> do not comprise a race, with solidarity. In fact, in uh, 
systematic theology, we speak of a company of angels. Each one is independent of the others. Uh, God created all the angels up front, and they are independent of each other. They're not related to one, one another in any sort of biological sense, only in, in, their, uh, in their appearance and, and makeup. There is no way for angels to become, in the words of verse 11, Jesus' brothers and sisters. There was no race. There are no brothers and sisters among the angels. Secondly, we find that angels don't procreate. There's no way for God to break into the realm of angels and save them. There's no way for God to become, in the words of verse 17, like the angels in every way. And number three, angels cannot be represented by a single head, like Adam in the human race, who stands as the appointed representative for all of us. In the words of verse 9, Christ could taste death, taste death for every human, but not for every angel. And so it is that we find uh, mankind who is lower than angels in power and majesty, verse 7 says, he comes to be the object of God's special redemptive favor, the favor that could only be supplied in the remarkable idea and person of Jesus Christ. And so while angels are instructive in an extraordinary way in this story, don't fixate on the angels too much. They're really only foils for someone and something else. Jesus is the center of this story. So let's explore him a bit further. I'm going to start the story way back, right, with the story of Adam and Eve. Because the story begins long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I have very little doubt that you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve, but let's point out a few of the details critical to our study this morning. God climaxed the creation week with the creation of a single man, Adam. Adam was not the product of a long evolutionary process. In fact, I think if you find it, if you see that, you'll see that if this idea is accepted, the whole story of Christmas, the cross, the resurrection, really is useless to us. No, Adam was created uniquely, even when compared with the animals around him. God created many animals of each species, but there was only one human. Even Eve herself comes out of Adam in the form from, from his rib. And so we find in Acts chapter 17 that God made the entire race out of one man, including his wife Eve. And God gave to this man, Adam, an extraordinary privilege and responsibility to speak for and act upon behalf of the entire human race. And he blew it, right? We know the story. Even though his wife Eve was the person, the person who ate first, the responsibility for her sin fell upon her husband. Adam, uh, Romans 5 verse 12 says, is the one man through which sin entered into the world so that death and sin spread to the entire race. And that single terrible decision of Adam doomed us all. Hope seemed gone. All was lost. All, there, was, there was no way to undo what Adam had done any more than one can put the paint back into a can after it has been spilled. 
Couldn't man simply reform himself and get back to what he was? No, because Adam's sin did more than simply supply a bad example for us. He corrupted us all. Couldn't God just appoint a new representative to solve the issue? That's part of the solution we're going to see here. But we find here that all mankind are born in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 says, he represented us at all. At best, we might say that God could create a new race with a totally new Adam. But this race, our race, what was the solution for us? Well, no ready solution presents itself, but read on. Complicating the matter still is the fact that even if God could somehow produce an uncorrupted person that was part of this race of humans, our race of humans, he could do nothing to help the corrupted race of humans as they presently exist. This afternoon, I'm going to go uh, to visit my brand new granddaughter. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And at this point, she seems to be an angelic type of uh, person. She's not, but she seems that way. But even if, even if she could, re- she could be an, an innocent person, she would be of no help to the rest of us, right? There, was, there, there would be no help that she could supply. Uh, you, you can't look, God, God cannot look upon favor upon people who have sinned because something that their relatives do, right? It's not as though you could avoid a spanking when you were a kid because your brother was a good, good kid or your sister. Most, most more, more importantly here, you can't avoid the death penalty because your brother is well-behaved. It just doesn't work that way. There's an ethical dilemma here. This new person can't simply spread his righteousness around and everything become okay. Justice needs to be done. Sin must be punished. This perfect brother of yours must take your punishment and die in your place. But even if he did all that, we have another problem. Now he's dead. He can't help you any more than he already has, and he can't help anybody else. We're effectively back where we started. This brother who took your place will have done pitifully little to resolve the massive problem. The situation seems perfectly hopeless. And so the backdrop of Hebrews 2 is set. We see a race of humans hopelessly condemned with no capacity for reform. We see no apparent means of resolution. We see no way for this corrupted race to produce even one uncorrupted representative. And even if that were possible, we see no way for that one human to resolve the problem of all his brothers and sisters. And it is only now that we can read verse 9 and catch its full import. But we see Jesus. This person of Jesus, this theological brainchild of Almighty God, he solves our dilemma in a way that no one perhaps anticipated. And so it is that we look at this Jesus whose infant form is celebrated during this season of Advent. What is it that makes him so special? Well, firstly, he is none other than the infinite and holy God. This, this is the one solution, the possibility that perhaps we've not anticipated, that God himself could somehow penetrate this foul race and save it, and that's precisely what happened. Look at me at some of the indicators in our own text. Verse 9 tells us, first of all, that Jesus was made a little, actually probably more a little while, for a little while, 
lower than the angels. He was made temporarily lower than the angels. And the implication here is that he has not always been lower than the angels, and he will, know, he will not be regarded as lower than the angels moving forward. But for a little while, he was a little lower than the angels. He condescended as Emmanuel. Three Hebrew words crammed together. Im with Manu us El. God. God with us. In such a way that to borrow Paul's words in Philippians 2, while he remained in his very nature God, he added to his complex of attributes a human nature. This idea is furthered in verses 14 and 17 of our text where two very interesting verbs are used. Christ shared. He became a partaker in flesh and blood and was made like his brothers in every way, verse 17. And these verbs here suggest that he was at one point wholly other, but was modified in some way by shrugging on a human costume. This kind of language is, uh, is reflected elsewhere in Scripture. John tells us that Christ came down, that he became flesh, and he records Jesus as saying, before Abraham was, I am. Not just I was, but I am. Bringing to himself uh, this, this, this divine name, Yahweh. Romans 1.3, that this Christ was made to be the seed of the David. So he was inserted in the human race and was sent to assume a flesh, verse 3 says. Philippians 2 compounds this idea, describing Christ as adopting the very nature of a servant and being manifested in human likeness, assuming the appearance of man. Elsewhere in this book, Hebrews verse, chapter 10, verse 5, we find that a body was prepared for him. All of these imply that Jesus had an eternal pre-existence as God, but came to earth to add humanity to himself. This is, in fact, it's probably incorrect to speak in terms of a change, except by addition. He was not transmuted into a human, but he added humanity to what has always been without surrendering anything that has always been. I think sometimes this is a, this is a stumbling block. In fact, just, just this week, a seminary student asked me, okay, so we talk about uh, Christ upholding all things by the power of his own hands. So is that true when his hands were infantile? And my answer is, okay, okay. he was in a, an infant human form, but he was not a divine infant, okay? He is and was and shall always be what he always has been in God. Right? So he was the second person of the Godhead, and he surrendered nothing of that. Christ was at all points like as we are, save one, right? What was that one point? That he had no capacity for sin, what chapter 2 tells us. He could not sin because of the divine presence in his theanthropic self. James 1 says that God cannot succumb to evil. And Jesus, inextricably united with God, also could not sin. Now this immediately resolves a great part of our problem, but perhaps not the entirety yet. We have more to, to, to see. That thoroughly foul person that had extended his unrighteousness to all persons that he represented, Adam, 
has fallen into the shadow of another representative whose righteousness is infinitely pure. And if, and if this man can be our champion, if this man can be our representative, then there could be no limitation on God's electing impulse to save. But there's one major problem yet to resolve, and that is that our God could only save that which he became, which brings us to something we've already hinted at very firmly here, and that is that Jesus Christ is perfectly and completely human in every way. It would not be enough for Christ as infinite God to simply absorb the wrath of God against sin and absolve everyone. How do we know that? Well, verses 9 and 10 say this. It is fitting. Perhaps we could use actually a stronger word here. Okay, It, it, it is fitting it is, it, is, it is appropriate to him. It is necessary for him to suffer and taste death. You see, no amount of positive merit, even the righteousness of God himself, can overcome the guilt, this liability to punishment that Adam had incurred not only for himself, but also for the rest of humanity. There had to be a solution to this problem. Human death was the only solution suitable to the crimes of humanity. Somebody has to die. This is necessary because of God's holy nature. And God cannot be subjected to suffering, much less death. We sing about him being immortal, invisible, God only wise. He's impervious to the independent efforts of his creatures to damage him. The only way that God could experience, in some sense, death is if he should assume a mortal form. And so verse 14 continues this sentiment that since the children, that is us, humans, have flesh and blood, he became a partaker. He shared in their humanity so that by his experience of humanity and specifically his experience of human death, he might meet the ethical demands of God and then break the power of sin, death, and Satan by conquering the grave and springing back to life. You see, our sin had rendered us mortal and we must die. This can't be avoided. We are mortal. And yet God himself made it possible for us to snort in the face of death and even to taunt it and say in the words of Paul, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Now Christ did not take away the experience of death, but he has made death into something more like a metamorphosis. We emerge from the valley of the shadow of death far better than we entered it. Why? Because God, God in Christ has carved out what was once a doorless prison cell. He has made it into a vestibule for eternity. It's a dark hallway, to be sure. None of us goes glibly into this dark hallway. But it is a hallway, nonetheless, that opens in glory. Verse 17 makes the strongest possible statement of the necessity of Christ's humanity. It behooved him. He had to be made like his brothers in every way so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and to make reconciliation 
for the sins of the people. There was no other way. No one could make atonement for the sins of humanity except for another human. No one could represent humanity to God as their mediator except for one who is a God-man, a human who suffered and was tempted just as we are, which is how our passage ends this morning. So he was just as we are. But not only is it necessary for Christ to become fully human, he had to have solidarity with right, we said, this particular race of humans. How could that happen? Christ could not have simply assumed some generic, sterile, disconnected humanity. He had to become a part of this family, this humanity. He had to become as we see this term over and again in this passage, he had to become our brother. He had to become, as the NIV says, of the same family to which we belong. He had to be willing to relate to us fallen members of the human race as his brothers and sisters. In fact, this may be the most difficult hurdle for the whole equation. How does God enter into Adam's race? How does this second person of the Godhead whose pre-existent person exists from all eternity take on flesh? How does it happen? Ordinarily, when you want to produce a baby, two humans get together and produce him. And the product of that union is not merely a new body, but a new soul, a new person. Personhood is received by inheritance from mom and dad. That's why the person, that little person, resembles you so much. Personhood is received from mom and dad just as surely as bones and blood and tissue. So how is God going to enter into the human race? Well, we can think about the options. None of them seem all that good. He could kill off the personhood of an existing person, but that seems to be an unethical solution. He could merge his personhood with an existing person, creating some sort of a schizophrenic monstrosity here but worse, a a sin-laden form of schizophrenia. He could simply appear as an independent person, but then he's not part of the human race as we know it. So what is the solution? Well, the solution is not given so much here in Hebrews chapter 2, but it's well known from other places in the Scripture. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I find the solution here is the virgin birth. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was in this wise. When his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, okay, an emphasis here on her virginity, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. she, she, She was not with another man. This is the product of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled 
that which was spoken by the, of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall, con, shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted again, it's God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did exactly as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and did not know her, did not have sexual relations with her, until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So four times, there's emphasis on the fact that Mary was a virgin. We find the same thing in the Luke account. In the sixth month, remember, God sent this angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to this virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. This virgin's name was Mary. And after the announcement is made, she asks, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One who will be born in you will be called the Son of God. This point there is very important to the story, and it's elsewhere taught in the Scriptures as well. In both of the genealogies, we find that it's almost as though the Scripture writers stumble in their efforts to make sure we recognize that Joseph is actually not the father of Jesus. When Jesus, age 12, goes to the temple and he was listening and conversing with the, uh, the wise men there in the, at, at, the, at the temple, Joseph comes back, he's headed home, comes back and says, hey, 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 what, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be with your mom and your dad. And what does Jesus do? Well, as tactfully as a 12-year-old can do, he said, you're not my father. I have to be about my actual father's business. In John 8, you find that everyone knew that Joseph wasn't Jesus' dad. Jesus' enemies begin a conversation by needling him about the identity of his father, suggesting perhaps that it was a Samaritan. They knew Jesus wasn't his dad. And when he made a comment about their parents, they say, whoa, 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 we're not illegitimate children like you are, implied. I'm guessing then in verse 48 of, of uh, John 8 that his father was some sort of a, a, a Samaritan mercenary of some sort. And so Jesus grows up with this weight on him that he was, in the opinion of those around him, an illegitimate child. And so the virgin birth comes to us as a clear teaching of Scripture and an important one, even though, if we think about it, it was something of a distasteful one, one for which Jesus suffered and his parents apparently suffered as well during his lifetime. So why is it that this happened? Why, why this distasteful story? Well, I think the virgin birth is widely misunderstood. Some suggest that women are generally more pure than men, which isn't true. Or perhaps that Mary specifically is pure among women, it's popular among the Roman Catholic view. Others are convinced that sin is genetically transmitted only by men. And uh, women may be infected by sin. They're not carriers, perhaps. But these notions are all incorrect. The reasons for the virgin birth are instead found in Hebrews. He had to become a brother to his humanity and made like them in every way except for 
the fact that he was a new person with a sin nature. He had to be yet without sin. Jesus had to receive from his mother, in this case, an impersonal human body that connected him with Adam's race, to which he could take his eternal personhood, his eternal divine personhood, and attach it to this impersonal body. And so this virgin birth that seems so bizarre and even tasteless is not only part of the Christmas story, but absolutely essential to it. It's the only way that God could intrude upon the human race and become just as we are, with a body ravaged by disease and injury, subject to hunger and thirst and tiredness and passion. He became, in the words of Hebrews 2, our brother, so that, most specifically, he could taste the bitterness of death, both his and ours, so that he could make atonement for the sins of the people. And so this is the Jesus of theology. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But it's incumbent upon us here not only to know who this Jesus is, not to simply have a theology lesson this morning, but to embrace him for all that he is to embrace him as the creator, sovereign, and judge as God, but also as brother and consequently our savior. No other solution exists for the problem of mankind. No other satisfaction for sin exists apart from the one God and the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And if the scriptures are correct in their assessment of who Jesus is, and they are, it's our state belief, then the implications could not be more important. C.S. Lewis put it this way, popular, of course, for his role in producing the Chronicles of Narnia. He said this, the person of Christ is not the sort of thing in which one can be moderately interested. Either he is not who he claimed to be and should either be ignored and exposed for the liar and fraud that he is, or he is who he claimed to be and we must make it the very fundamental goal of our existence to make our peace with him. Nothing in this life matters more. A few years ago, I decided to discover in the New Testament scriptures every reference that gave explicit reasons for Christ's coming. So he came in order that, I have come in order that you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the list was long, close to 40 of them. But I was able to create really four categories that captured all of them. Here they are, the four categories I've discovered. Firstly, and first in order, I think, is that he came to show us who God is. John 1.14 says that no one has ever seen God at any time. Jesus has explained him. Jesus had manifested him. This was the, this was this, this was the question from, from, eternity, from, from, from ages past. Job, Job, when he is suffering, said, I, I, just, I just wish there was someone that could lay his hands upon me and God and be a mediator, a judge between us, so that, in this case, he could be absolved of the sins of which he is being accused. But he said, alas, there is none, right? In his day, there wasn't. We know now that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Isaiah, likewise, oh, that you would just rend the heavens and come down. 
then we could have some relief, some satisfaction. But no one has seen God at any time. Jesus has made him known. And so we see in Jesus Christ all the fullness of God in bodily form. But not only God's sympathy and compassion and grace and love and mercy, which endear us to him, but also his holiness and purity and righteousness and justice and sovereignty, under which we tremble. We see the whole package, and we have to come to grips with that whole package. Secondly, first he came to, know, to, to let us know who God is. Secondly, he came to show us who we are, right? Or perhaps what we ought to be. Where he failed, where, where, where I failed, he succeeded. Where I succumbed to temptation, he triumphed over it. Where I said, I will not submit, he said, I will. Where I said, I love myself, he said, I love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and flesh. And he suffered for it, right? Peter says this, Christ suffered for you, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threat. Instead, he tr entrusted himself to him who, just, who judges justly, bearing our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might live to righteousness and die to our sins. Which leads us logically to a third reason for his coming, and that is to pry his people away from this world. I choose those words carefully because what I'm about to say is contrary to much of what the world thinks about the Christian Christmas message. Christmas time, the world says, is a time set as, to set aside differences, right? To be at peace with everyone, to enjoy the warm, cozy, nostalgic thoughts of family and friends and childhood, to go back to a to a time when things were better and simpler and happier and pretend that that's the way it is again. But this sentiment, as warm as it may seem, carries within it the seeds of destruction. I want to point you to two passages that sort of push back against this idea. Matthew 10, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. Like that, that's not a verse that we normally read at Christmas time. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This is why I have come. Wow, that, 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 said, that wasn't on any of my Christmas cards this year. Luke 12. I have come to bring fire on the earth. Do you think that I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, I have come to bring division. So these verses are often overlooked at the Christmas season. They seem at odds with the, 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 the beautiful picture of the glow of candlelight, the gentle cries of a newborn, the serene and pastoral scene that eventually pans away from this little cave where Jesus is born to the clear scarlet, starlit sky. Surely, this is a messenger of peace. Isn't that what the angel said? Kind of. They announced peace for those upon whom his favor rests. For those whom God has chosen to pry away from the cordial destruction toward which the rest of this world is streaking. For those who by faith seek peace with him rather, and peace in the life to come. For those who may suffer misery in this life in order to know God's benevolent rule in the next. 
Christ has come with peace for those. But for others, not so much. Still, I think we can come to the joyful observation, fourthly, that Christ came not primarily to judge people for their sins, but rather to save his people from their sins. He did not come only to show us how to live. He surely did that, but that was not his primary purpose. He does not come simply to reprimand us for not living the way we ought. He does that too, although that's not the primary reason. He did not come only to create division, although he did that. He came to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God and make reconciliation, make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is what the consistent testimony of Scripture is. God has come to help his people, Luke 7. 1 John 3, Christ appeared to take away our sins. Matthew 1, Christ has come to save his people from their sins. Luke 1, Christ has come to redeem his people, that is to pay the ransom price necessary to our release from bondage. Which is why when we come to the foot of the cross, he said, my heart is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this very reason I've come. He came that his sheep might have life and have it to the full, John 10 says, and to reconcile us to God, 1 Peter 3, 18. That is to make possible our peace with God. And this would, it would seem, is the principal reason that Christ came. He came to bring peace to on earth to those upon whom his favor rests. Not peace and goodwill generally, but peace between God and his people, those who will repent and submit before their God and powerful king and find him to be a most gentle and benevolent monarch. And so Christ comes to offer us an ultimatum. Will you make your peace with God by embracing Christ for all that he is? Or will you ignore him? Or, perhaps worse, reinvent him as a Christ with whom you are more comfortable. Christ came to offer you his life and freedom from the destructiveness of this world, to restore mankind to the purpose for which mankind was created. This is the Christ of theology. And if you are to celebrate Christmas well this year, you must do more than simply buy the prize goose and give it to Tiny Tim's family, right? You must acknowledge him as your creator and judge and Lord and brother and savior. To do less is to miss the whole reason for this Christmas holiday that we will be celebrating in the upcoming weeks. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful this morning for your word. Lord, we are thankful for the person and work of Jesus our Lord Christ. Lord, as we come to the end of this time, Lord, I ask that you would uh, situate our thinking and our minds uh, so that we would not be some, become so wrapped up in the, uh, the pleasures of this season that we lose sight of the, of, of the great sacrifice and, and, and even the horror of what happens in the Christmas season and thereafter. And Lord, I ask that we would, in not losing sight of that, that we would be better adjusted so that we can celebrate Christmas the way you have intended for us to do. 
In your name we pray, amen.